Hello everyone and welcome to the Hidden Lives of Writers. My name's Fiona Snickers and I'm joined by my co-host Gail Schimmel. Hi Gail. Hi Fiona and hello to all our listeners. I have been waiting and waiting for this podcast because it's a new month and I want to know if your writing hiatus is over. My writing hiatus is over and joyfully so. I mm-hmm. looked forward to the first of the month and then strangely didn't do anything on the first of the month because it was a busy day and then worried that I was going to get caught in an inability to start writing again. But what I'm doing is I had finished a first draft, to use a technical term, a shitty first draft, mm-hmm. um, and I am now editing that. And I am absolutely loving being back in a writing world that I'm sure about. I'm, I'm sure about this book in a way I wasn't sure about what I was writing before. And I'm editing in a slow and thoughtful way, which is not really me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a slow and thoughtful writer, but I'm editing in a slow and thoughtful way. I'm making myself read the chapter once and then add and add layers to it and then read it again. I feel like I'm peeling an onion mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm really, I'm having fun. I'm loving it. It almost sounds like you're building an onion. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe that is a better way of thinking of it because I'm adding rather than subtracting. So you're right. I am building an onion. I will think of it as I go back to, to my editing this afternoon that I'm building an onion. What about you, Fiona? How has your writing week been? It's been okay. Um, I'm getting the words on the page. I experienced a slight crisis of confidence the other day. When it's not you having one, then it has to be <laughs> me, I think. Um, I had ordered some author copies of books that I publish independently on Amazon Kindle. And these books all arrived and I spread them out on the table and I thought, wow, I wrote all that. Those are all my words on the page. And instead of kind of patting myself on the back and thinking, wow, I wrote Mm. all that, I I had a crisis of I wrote all that and I still have not met all my goals as a writer. And, you know, every step of the way, like I thought I'd be published by 30. I wasn't. I thought I'd have won an award by 45 and I hadn't. And you know, I, I kind of get there eventually, but I still have the sense of not quite being where I am, not quite having the readership that I look at all those words and I wonder, well, you know, what was the point? What's the point of all the stuff that I've written? And I wish I could offer to the reader a way to get yourself out of that. Um, and I'm wondering if you have Fiona, advice for me. This is so interesting because I have I have my notes here, as we always do, of what we're talking about um, in in the introduction to each episode. And in answer to what are you consuming, I want to talk about a podcast I've been listening to. Mm-hmm. And the podcast is about this. It's about being stuck. Right. And it's about how do you move on from being stuck? How do you remain motivated? It's a podcast called The Hidden Brain. The host is Shankar Vedantam. Mm-hmm. I think I said that correctly. And it is normally a psychology podcast. They talk about different aspects in every episode. But then once a year, they do a series called You Version 2. And they will dig deep into a particular topic about Mm self-improvement. And this year, it is about being stuck. And I listened to the first episode, and it talked about 
sticky middles. Mm-hmm. Um, but sticky middles apparently happen in everything in life, that the beginning's exciting, whether it's a book or a race or a career, and the end is exciting, but the middle is hard. Right. And they talk about, and I think what you are experiencing is a bit of that feeling of, well, what have I achieved and how does what I've done meet up with my goals and is it worth finishing and is it worth pursuing those goals? And I'm also feeling that a lot. Um, a lot of what you're saying is resonating with me, but I found this podcast a really interesting, it's, it's got techniques for for breaking being stuck mm-hmm. and I'm hoping as I listen to the whole series on you version two this year that I'll be unstuck by the end of it. Well, that sounds great. That sounds like something I really need <laughs> because uh, what I've been consuming this week once again goes back to yellow face. Which Fiona, <laughs> are you going to be talking about yellow face for the next three years? It's quite possible <laughs> that I will. But, you know, just to give one's confidence an additional knock, one of the issues she explores in that book is who has the right to tell a story. So she creates a scenario where there are two friends at university and they're very close and they share everything. And the one friend undergoes an uncomfortable sexual experience that she isn't sure whether to place it as an assault or even more serious than that, or was it just something that got out of control so the very fact that she feels so ambivalent about it makes it linger in her mind even longer. And she breaks down and confides this all to her friend. And the next thing she knows, that story appears in the campus magazine exactly as she told it to her friend, her pain on the page, but not told by her, told by her friend. And the friend never explains and never apologizes and accepts everybody's congratulations. And that to me is, is just so interesting and so fascinating. Whose story is it to tell? Do you have the right to tell absolutely any story that gets told to you? Do stories even belong to people? Mm, mm. I don't know how you feel about that. Do you, do you hesitate to take on other people's stories? Well, I don't know that I ever do tell other people's stories, but I think every writer borrows to mm-hmm. some extent. There's mm-hmm. something we've heard. There's something that's, that's put a seed. Um, I have two direct experiences. The one where our part of a motivation came from a case I'd read, um, mm-hmm. in my day job and it was a very disturbing case and I did give credit in the, in the acknowledgements, but I do wonder if I had a right to use that, the imagining that it sparked in the way that I did. To, drawing on other people's pain. I I did have thoughts about that. I have another one where I used a little bit of a friend's story and I got her permission. Right. Um, right, But it is an interesting, what about you? It's something that I've wrestled with. I've wrestled with it on the page. I've I've wrestled with it inside my own head. I think I, I do appropriate stories that I hear. Somebody must tell me their story at their peril because it will Mm. find its way onto the page. But I I also like to think I will not strip it naked and put it on Mm. the page in such a recognizable form. I think also one often doesn't really remember where it came from. It goes Mm. into your head into a melting pot of ideas Mm. and it comes out in a slightly different form in a different way. I mean, when I say I used a friend's story, it really was the bare bone idea that I used, not her actual story. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think that's how writers' brains do work to some extent. 
Well, I think so. And our guest today is somebody who goes to some very dark places on the page. So perhaps we can ask him about his inspirations. Our guest today is Echo Duca. Echo is the author of White Wahala, Dying in New York, The God Who Made Mistakes, and most recently, Yellowbone. Hi, Echo, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Echo, we are so excited to have you here, but we're going to just jump right in and ask you, and I hope it's not a personal sensitive question, okay. how has your writing week been? I haven't been writing at all. <laughs> <laughs> that is the, that is the part that I was yeah. that I was worried would be a personal sensitive question. Yeah. Talk us through that. Um, is not writing the norm for you these days, or not really? And I have been reading a lot, and I suppose that reading is the flip side of actually writing. Um, so you may know that I'm one of the judges for the Sunday Times. Yes, uh, Sunday Times Barry Ronga yes. um, thing. So I have to read a lot. Absolutely. And that must be, I want to talk to you more about what that reading is like, because it okay. must be a particularly intense type of reading. Yes, it is. And I think in part because of the sheer number of books, and it always feels like you don't have enough time. You want to give each author the right care and attention. So it is intense from that perspective, yes. And it's a long, long list, isn't it? It is a very it's always long list. quite a lot yes. of books. So when the long list is announced, have you already read all those books or do you only start reading from when the long list is announced and you only read the long list? Right. So when the long list is announced, you've already started reading the long, long list. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then obviously you have, you have to read every book, obviously on the mm -hmm. long list. And there must be that some of them are not in the genre you would automatically choose for yourself. There must be some books you come to and you think, can't wait to read this, Divine. And some books mm -hmm. you come to and you're like, let me steal myself. Am I guessing <laughs> that right? Um, yes and no. I think it's actually been quite rewarding in the sense that the process has allowed me to uh, read books I would not normally have read. Yes. So that has certainly been great, and I do enjoy that. Some books do I have to steal myself for? Yes. <laughs> I imagine, because I know yes. when I'm on a panel... You, you, and you want to read all the books and some of the books it's, it's part of your normal reading, but some mm -hmm. of the books it's not part of what you would normally read. And often those are the ones you enjoy the most. Yeah, the sometimes. Yeah, you're right. Yes. Yeah, you're right. You make a good point there. <laughs> yeah, it can be very rewarding to be made to read outside of your chosen genres. You yes. discover this whole world of books that you kind of, as you would say, Gail, protect yourself from <laughs> normally. <laughs> I'm a great protector of myself, yeah. Echo. Um, and it's a particularly wonderful long list this year. I think I've looked at it and thought, oh, mm. I want to read that, I want to read that, and then there's some that I have read, and there's some that I wrote. So we'll move on from there. <laughs> <laughs> um, Echo, when you are writing, what does mm -hmm. your writing day look like? When, when are your productive times? When are you putting pen to paper? Um, so when I am writing... I usually start quite early in the morning, mm -hmm. about four or five or something like that, because I find that by the evening, I'm usually too tired. Yeah. Um, so there's less happening in the house um, at four and five. So that's, so that's when I usually write. And I don't write a lot at a time. I would write maybe for an hour. Right. Um, so it's not so much about um, doing long stints, but 
doing sorts of regular stints I find works for me. With a fresh brain and then you find that you get that mm. good content. Sometimes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and what what would be, when you talk about shortest and what, how much would you write in an hour? You know, some people write 10,000 um, words in an hour, some uh, people write five. Yeah. Oh, I think I would write much less than that. It's usually about two to three thousand or there that's a lot okay i don't think anyone really writes ten thousand words in an hour <laughs> two to three thousand an hour is extraordinary that is a huge number of words but wow. that depends on um uh how it feels right you know so sometimes it's a struggle like i'm sure you know and sometimes it's not right yeah. right when you hit that sweet spot and the words are just coming easily then you're basically just typing them down Yes, yeah, so it often feels like when I'm in that space or that zone, it, it almost feels like you're, it feels like you're taking dictation mm-hmm. and it's not hard at all. Right, right. And when you hit that zone, do you still stop at the end of your hour or do you then keep writing as long as you're in the zone? Mm, so I don't have a, a fixed time to stop. It's usually about, um, it's usually about an hour to an hour and a half. It's sort of like coding where you're so much into it that you don't want to stop, but then something tells you that, you know, you're writing nonsense. So you, okay. so you should stop and you should take a break. Which segues nicely into you have a whole other life. You started life really not as a writer. The internet tells me you started life as an oil field engineer, yes, which did, makes yeah. me picture you in a kind of really, I don't know, on an oil rig, doing oil riggy things. With a hard you, hat on. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us your origin story. And I know your origin story involves lots of countries, lots of careers, lots of changes. So over to you. Mm-hmm. So, so I think the writing, and I'm sure there'll be people who have heard this before because I always say it, that, that the writing comes from my mother. Uh, she was a teacher and she always encouraged us to read. And when her kids, my siblings and I had kids, she encouraged us to read to them. Um, the oil field plays a part in my writing journey because of where I was posted to. And my first, the first country, it, it, it's actually the second country, but the first long country I worked in, I was sent to Libya. Okay. And from Libya to Algeria. So how the oil field helped the writing was that uh, you have a lot of time on your hands in the desert. Like There's not a lot to do in the desert. So that's where the writing started. And I started writing for the company magazine okay. because they were always keen for the engineers to send in a paragraph. And in those days, you literally had to write it out and print it. And you, then you dropped it in the mailbag and it got sent to Paris. Um, and I would write about what's, what it's like to work in Algeria or what it's like to work in Libya. Um, most engineers did not write. Mm. Uh, and, and I remember going to Paris, which is where the headquarters was for a course, a training course or something. And the lady who managed the magazine somehow heard I was there. And then she looked me up because she wanted to see who it was had been sending her those things. Um, so that was the first inclination I had that people might actually like what I wrote and how I wrote. Um, so that's really where it 
started. Okay. You weren't that little boy who was just compulsively writing stories and always had the ambition of being a writer. It came to you a bit later in life. Yes, I think several things have come to me um, fairly later in life. Uh, So I didn't really write when... um, I think when I was small, I was... I see myself playing, playing with wires and with tin cans and making toys and um, switching lights on or making little circuits because my father was an electrical engineer. Right. So I guess at I guess at some level I wanted to emulate him. So I didn't write. I was more doing like uh, boy stuff at inverted commas. Yeah. Yeah, stuff that one could imagine a, a young engineer yeah. being interested in. Yes. Yeah, you, you picture Baby Echo, the the engineer, not not the writer. <laughs> and nowadays, for da- a day job, you're a banker. Is that correct? No, I used to be a banker. Used to be a banker. So, so for, take us from an oil field to a bank. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? Right. Um, so it's quite a traditional journey. Oh, really? Because um, so the routes from the oil field to the bank went through an MBA, and it actually. It's actually lots of engineers who do that. So they go back to school so that they can uh, change a career and do something which is more in line with, more in line with consulting or the business side. Um, so that was in Okay. So I did, I did the MBA in France and then moved to South Africa. Then I started working for Deloitte Consulting, doing consulting stuff. It's interesting that the first consulting assignment was at ESCOM. <laughs> but you take no responsibility. <laughs> well, I take absolutely none. It's interesting that at the time, um, and I do remember this, that the staff were very proud of the organization and they would proudly say that they have the lowest generating cost in, in the world. Wow. Um, and of course, things have changed a lot. Well, I'm sure they still have the lowest generating costs in the world because they're not generating anything. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and Echo nowadays for the, a day job? Yes. Yeah, so from, um, so from, so from working for Deloitte, I then worked for Standard Bank for a while and, and also worked for Absa Bank for a while. Um, Standard Bank was more of a strategy role, which is really about storytelling. Um, the job at APSA eventually became a data a data and analytics job. And at the time I was head of analytics for the retail and the retail and the business bank. Um, so that led to what I do now, which is I'm the founder of or rather the co-founder of an AI startup that provides AI solutions and skills to organizations. Oh, wow. That is so interesting. It is interesting because uh, you might know that AI has caused a lot of panic in the writing world. Um, mm. People nervous that their intellectual property will be scraped and picked up by AI and repurposed and that they'll now have no further control over their words. Um, is, is that something that you've thought about or worried about? Or is it not something that touches on you? Well, I do think about it and I don't think it's that dire. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you think of the advent of photography, right. it didn't mm-hmm. really, it didn't put painters out of work. It maybe 
broadened their perspective and gave them another set of tools to work with. Right. Mm. I think that's what AI will be for the writing community. Though you are right that it is possible and actually very easy for an AI to write in your style or to write in your style. I saw an article yeah. this morning, in fact, about a writer who has gone on to Amazon mm-hmm. and discovered books written by her, mm-hmm. which are actually AI well. generated books, um, yeah, and under her name. But from what I understood from the article, once you start reading the book, mm-hmm. it's really, really obvious that it's not her. Right. So I, so I have done the exercise before. So I did do something like that to see if I could tell um, which text was written by an AI. And once you start reading and you have an appreciation and you have an appreciation of the writer, it does become quite obvious which one is which. Though having said that, um, the arms race that the AI manufacturers or the AI developers are on suggests that the AI will only get more and more proficient. Yes, yes. So I don't have the answer to... Um, so I don't have a, a a certain answer to the question, will, you know, will writers be put out of work? <laughs> and, and I like to think not, because an AI really has no feelings and yeah. it and it doesn't draw on the wells of things that you would draw on when you write yes but they are getting so blazingly proficient at what they do that they are able to simulate that so i don't know what the long term future yeah. is but but i like to think that we will never come to a point where we would we would prefer to read a book written by an ai rather than by one of you mm. Gus Silber, who we spoke to last season, feels that we will always kind of know that we we might not know what's wrong with what we're reading, but that mm-hmm. that a human being will kind of have an instinct that an AI book is not touching them in the same way that a human written book has touched them. So what I spend my my mornings doing, since I'm not writing now, um, is I play a lot of so I play so I play around a lot with AI. So trying to see what it can do and or rather trying to see what it can do reliably. Um, so I think that the technology is so revolutionary and, and it's, and it's so powerful that I do think at some point you won't be able to tell the difference. And do you think your analogy with photography that it might become an art form? To be someone who produces really good AI books, who like oversees the formation and gives the instructions. You know, like photography has become an art mm-hmm. form in its own right. Maybe mm-hmm. overseeing an AI writing a book will become an art form in its own right. Yes, I think you make a great point. I think, and, and I think you're alluding to what they now call prompt engineering. Mm. So how you talk to the AI to guide it and nudge it to come back with what makes sense and what you are satisfied with. So I see no reason why uh, there won't be prompt engineering for writers. Very interesting. Yeah, it's interesting to me that the people who work with AI and know it well are not in a panic and see it more as a tool, something Mm -hmm. that in the future 
will be useful to writers rather than something that's going to put us all out of work. Yeah. I was reading um, an article last week by the head of Amazon Web Services. Right. And I think he described it very well that, you know, so he says that we are three steps into a 10,000 K race. Okay. So no need to panic. No one really knows where the chips will fall. And we are all learning how this thing will pan out. And it's going to happen, whether we like yeah. it or not. So yeah. we must learn to work with it and embrace it and use it as a tool rather than panic. Yes, I think so, it. yeah. Um, it's I like a so. cell phone. There's nothing we can do. It's here to stay. Yes. Um, Echo, you were talking about the human being who sort of draws inspiration for their writing from their personal circumstances. And I was interested to imagine you going into the banking world. And then in my mind, I saw you becoming inspired to write White Wahala because it's, it's kind of set partly in that world. Mm-hmm. Um, was it entering that world, seeing sort of aspiring but insecure young executives uh, leaning on drugs to cope with their circumstances? Was it that that inspired that book? Mm. I hadn't thought about it that way. Now you mention it, I think that that was part of the inspiration for the story. The setting I worked in at the time mm-hmm. um, led me to fictionalize that type, um, those types of people. Right, yeah. right. And you started off um, on a self-publishing journey mm. with your books. Yes, I Can did, you yeah. talk us through that? Why you chose that? How many of your books you self-published? And then how you moved into becoming a Big Five published author? Because Award-winning. Okay. Award-winning Big Five published author, okay. uh, part um, of the Pan Macmillan stable. So I, self, so, so I went the self-publishing route, I think, because I didn't know any better mm-hmm. and I was looking to be published um, the self-publishing I found was quite easy but but then there's no marketing push behind it and I didn't have the bandwidth or the time or the energy or even the knowledge you know to apply the marketing to what I had online so I think my first two books Dying in New York and White Wahala they were self-published for literally a num- for a few weeks maybe a couple of months. Mm-hmm. And then alongside, I happened to meet Alison Lowry, who became my editor. Right. And she's, and then she somehow o- opened the door to Pan Macmillan. Okay. And I think that Pan Macmillan, in their publishing process, took my self-published works off the market mm-hmm. and they republished the physical version and the Kindle version. And was there a lot of change in editing involved in that process? You know, what was, was it frightening for you having this book that you thought was already ready for publication? Cause I know what having a book published is like and editors are harsh and they make you change things. How much of that was there? Uh, there, and it was a while ago. I don't quite remember, but I do know that I enjoy the editing process a lot. It, it's the part I look forward to the most because for the first time, you're sharing the book with somebody else and they're able to give you new perspectives. And my editing experience has always been uh, the feedback makes the book a better book. 
I 100% agree with you. And I think being edited by someone like Alison is a huge, huge privilege. You and I have talked about that. At one point, we both had published, we were on our fourth book and we'd done all four books with the same editor. Yes. Um, talk to us about that editor relationship. Um, so I think it helps to have somebody you know and respect. And I have a lot of... Uh, uh, and I would say love and affection for Alison Lowry. I think that helps. So you know who is sending you the feedback and where it comes from. Um, so I think once you have that, then, then the rest just falls into place because she would never say anything from a place of, for a place of ignorance. Yes. And, and it's always meant to help and you take it in that light. So it's always been great. I 100% agree. I love being edited. Is self-publishing something that you would ever return to or have you found your groove now as a, a um, conventionally published author? Um, I think I would still go the, the, you know, the normal traditional route. Mm-hmm. And I do have a manuscript at the moment and I'm trying to find an agent and a publisher for that Um Self-publishing hasn't crossed my mind again, actually, until you mentioned it now. <laughs> now you're suddenly going to go home and rethink everything. <laughs> the, the agent publisher route, um, presu- I'm presuming from the word agent that you're looking further afield than South Africa for this manuscript. Yeah, that's right, yes. Okay. Yes. Um, and just for, for the listener, can you talk through why it is that one has to, why would you be looking further afield? I mean, I think I know the answer, but why would you be looking further afield and why does one need an agent? And I think it's because the, you know, the market in South Africa for fiction is small. Right. Um, you know, the numbers, in the numbers speak for themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think as a writer, you, you have this hankering to be heard by a, you know, by a broader audience. So maybe it's a bit of hubris, but you do like to think that your work can stand on its feet um, um, in an international market. In your case, Echo, without a doubt. <laughs> um, so why you need an agent from what I know is that overseas you can't, it's, it's rare to approach a publisher directly. Mm. So you have to go through an agent. Mm. And what are you doing to actively seek out an agent at the moment? Uh, so at the moment, nothing. Okay. Um, so I have been sporadically going through the querying process, which, which I guess for your listeners, it's sort of like trying to find a job. So you send your CV out there and hope there's someone out there who, who likes the one page summary enough to want to see more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We had an interview with Amy Heidendrich who spoke at length about the querying process. And I think for anyone interested in the querying process, that episode is a wonderful one to go back to. I've learned a lot from Amy and okay. understood why I never, ever, ever found an agent. It all became clear to me when I listened to it. <laughs> <laughs> Echo, you and I met, Fiona, I don't know if you know this story. Echo I and I, I actually met... When we were briefly members of the same writing group. Oh, yes, yes, that's um, right, yes. And Echo came to this writing group and 
then wrote like we, we used to get prompts um mm. someone would be in charge of the session and give us prompts and echo would write these unbearably beautiful pieces when the rest of us were floundering around and writing rubbish but echo that that idea of a writing community and a writing group is that something you believe in did it help you um i know it helped me with the book i was writing at the time but i haven't mm. done it since mm-hmm. um what, what are your feelings about that well i think it's great and I think it's a it, it's a wonderful it's a wonderful resource because it it helps you uh, you know to lift your head and get feedback and thoughts and 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 hear what other people are going through because writing, as you both know, it um, is lonely and it can get to the point where um, you know you kind of you know so one can lose perspective, and I find that the writing groups and the um, and similar resources, they help to challenge you and to sharpen your craft. Do you still have a writing group? At, at the moment, no, I don't have one. It's, I haven't done it since that group, mm. but the writing community is a huge support, I find. It is, yeah. I think having a writing group is a kind of stepping stone for many writers. Mm. It it builds your confidence, it builds your experience, um, it, it gives you a sense of whether this is being well received or not. And then mm. after a while, you get the confidence to sort of go forth on your own and and do it and be a bit mm. more sure that it's going to be well received. And I, I think some writers don't necessarily then step back into that space as well unless they become teachers of writing and and maybe mm-hmm. lead a writing group of their own so it's it's a it's a, yeah, it's a bridging a very, process i think that yes. is what it was for me echo you write in south africa um you in that weird space of writing as a foreigner and it's something mm-hmm. we've spoken to other writers about how has that been for you how have you been received as a Ghanaian writing in south africa and about south africa um i think it's generally been good um, I have had some feedback from a lady from Tata because in my last book, it's, it's at least the first part is set there. Mm. And then she said to me, Tata is nothing like that, but she loved the book. Okay. Um, so I do welcome that sort of feedback and generally the audience have been very kind. Um, you know, they haven't really, they haven't really bashed me about, uh, uh, you, um, so, so they never say you haven't earned the right, so you don't have the right to speak about these places. It, it's funny that I write about South Africa yes. because I was too afraid to write about Ghana. Uh, interesting. Yeah, and why? But, but you do have Ghanaian characters in Yellowbone. I noticed yes. you, you introduced them. For yes, the first yes, yes. Time. So that was my feeling confident enough to do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because I always had this image of my mother saying, no, it's not like that. Mm-hmm. So it took me four books to write about again. Is your mother yeah. still alive? No, she's not. That, that, that I do sometimes think as hard as the death of a parent is, it sometimes does free a writer in some ways mm-hmm. that we're freed of that idea that our parents are going to be reading what we've written, which yes. is a strange thing. Yes, to, yes. You but know. having said that, you know, she probably wouldn't have read it. But I still had that that voice voice saying, um, so not so not wanting to disappoint her. Okay. Yeah. 
And do you, do you think that that's something you might push more, that we might see more of Ghana? Because Ghana is a rich and interesting and amazing country. You know, it's something I'd want mm. to read more about. Um, yes, yeah, so I did that, um, not so much about Ghana, but, but, but the manuscripts I have, the manuscript I finished, is actually about a Nigerian family. Okay. Uh-huh. And Nigeria and Ghana are quite close. Mm. Um, uh, there's a rivalry between the two, sort of like the French and the Belgians. Mm-hmm. Um, but the manuscript it, it speaks about a Nigerian family and specifically about a young Nigerian girl. But, um, you know, so once again, the, uh, the story is, um, set in South Africa, but I draw heavily on the Nigerian culture. And much of the dialogue is actually in Nigerian, Nigerian pidgin. Okay. Um, as, yeah, which, which is not the same as the pigeon we speak in Ghana. And how do you research something like that? Oh, yes. Um, uh, some of it is through Google. And, and I remember speaking to Yewande, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to help me with some elements of the Nigerian pigeon because it's really not the same. The Nigerian pigeon is more muscular. Um, so I needed her, you know, to, in a sanity check that. Okay. And I'm interested in how you choose your narrative perspective because I've noticed that you are almost never content with one narrative perspective in a book. You tend to do what they call head hopping. You occupy the the vantage point of different characters to tell different parts of the story. Is that mm-hmm. something you've always done consciously? Is it a choice? Um, mm-hmm. how did that come to you? And I try, and I try not to do it, <laughs> but I, but I, um, and I think I do do it. I, I'm not sure it's a hard question. Um, I think it makes the writing richer, actually, to have all those different mm-hmm. perspectives kind of contributing yeah. to the narrative. And I'm thinking of your question through the lens of the most recent man- manuscript. Mm-hmm. So there's the daughter, the father, and the mother, and and they each have a different worldview. And I do try to bring that across. Yes, you're right. So I think I do that to give you a more, hopefully, a more rounded perspective of this, um, of the situation where the story is happening. Mm-hmm. So you can see it from you know, from three different perspectives or four different pers- perspectives. Sometimes it can be confusing. Um, I remember, I remember there, there was a lady at the book club who said she found my book very confusing. <laughs> uh, so I guess it has its pros and cons, but, but it's something that it, it's a style I think that comes more naturally to me. I have never found your books at all confusing. I think oh, there's great. something wrong with that lady at the book club. <laughs> Echo, you're also very brave about putting yourself into a point of view that is very different from your own. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you will go into a woman's head. You will go into a gay man's head. Um, mm-hmm. how, how do you do that within yourself? Um, I think it's because I'm always attracted to, to the non-conventional. And you are right that I, I'm more comfortable writing about women um, and girls. I don't know where that comes from. Um, though I did do, uh, some years ago, I did, um, and I forget what the term is, but 
Um, it is this hypnosis where you regress. Okay. Okay. Um, past life. Okay. Thingy thingy. And, and my past lives, my past lives were, they were always women. That's very interesting. Um, so maybe that's where it comes from. I, I'm, I would much rather write about a woman than a man. Though at the same time, I'm, I'm conscious that it's not what I naturally know. Mm-hmm. And especially going through the Sunday Times reading all the, all the, all the books, it kind of, it, it humbles you and, and, and reminds you that you don't know it all. Mm. Yes. Mm. It's, it's a brave thing to do, I think. Um, I find writing men, I always pause a moment before I go into a man's head. Um, I find it quite, it's quite scary inside a man's head. <laughs> <laughs> um, Echo, you are a very contained person in person. Mm-hmm. Um, very measured, very thoughtful. Um, you, you give thought before you speak. And then there is your world of fiction, mm-hmm. which is almost feverishly imaginative and traumatic and terrible and awful and also wonderful. And it's, it's just this, what's happening on the page doesn't match with the very contained person that mm-hmm. we see face to face. Have people commented on that before? Do you think you are sort of, um, experiencing it's, it's a form of therapy for you to put these things on the page? And it has been mentioned. And I think the most, uh, the most telling one was my, um, and I suppose she's still my business partner, but her, her husband read one of my books. Mm. And nearly and, died of shock. <laughs> and, and then he got worried that his wife was, was in business with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So she asked, so he asked her if, um, if I'm, I'm a violent person. Okay. Um, so it has happened. Mm-hmm. It, it, um, is, is it therapy? Maybe it is. I don't know. Um, and I do enjoy exploring the, the parts of our lives that people don't talk about. Right. And are not willing to share because they'll be judged or whatever. Mm. And, and I guess a large part of that has to do with, um, people's other desires. I wouldn't necessarily call them darker desires, but they're just, you know, that in the parts of ourselves, we keep to ourselves. Yeah. Because we don't think that they would, um, stand up, stand up to the light of day. Right. Um, and I tend to be drawn to that. Um, yeah. And I'm curious, are you drawn to that as a reader as well? Is that what you look for in the, in the books that you enjoy the most? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I do enjoy, um, uh, reading about people who are odd, uh, people who look odd, think in an odd way and, um, and do odd things because I think that the, the, the normal, the mundane can be boring. And it's something we live every day, you know, so why not experience something else? I'm always very curious about when someone has written beautiful books like you do, where everyone is an an absolute work of art. Of your books, what is your favorite? And and I'm not trying to plug the manuscript, but I, but I really think that, that the manuscript I have, 
uh, on my desk is uh, the best one. Well, that's no good to us, Eka, because we can't read it yet. <laughs> yes, so, for, so for the yeah. reader out there, for the published books, which one? Yeah. I know uh, my favorite. And I would say Yellowbone, um, okay. largely because it's the most recent or the last one. So I, I think I've, um, so I think that through the passage of time, I've, um, I hope it's a better book, um, from a technical, from a technical perspective. Um, so, so I, so I would say Yellowbone. And also because it's the first time I, I veered into what I later discovered, um, was, was called magic realism. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so that's something I enjoyed because I find that, um, it's, uh, I wouldn't say it's a part of me, but, but it's something, it's, it's something I lean towards in, I, I lean towards that sort of thing in my personal life. Do you I, think you are a writer who gets better and better with every manuscript? And I'd like to think so, yes. Okay. And speaking of Yellowbone, what drew you to the issue of colorism as something that you wanted to explore on the page? Well, because it's so absurd. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's absolutely absurd that um, so much of our existence is is viewed through the filter of what your skin color is. So it was really that. It, it, it was just the absurdity and the stupidity and the comfort of it that um, led me to want to write about that. But as, as absurd as it is, it is also very, very real. It because is. Because it impacts deeply on your characters' lives. Yes, yes. I remember when I, uh, and I remember when I, when I lived and worked in Nigeria, uh, if you had, um, as if, if you had a light skinned girl, mm. uh, in, in the passenger sh- seat, she was said to be your inside light in the sense that she brightened up, uh, the, the car. So it's, it, it, it's, um, and, and I think it's something that something that all cultures do. They, as, they ascribe a value to your shade of your skin, and generally, the darker you are, the you know, the worse off uh, you are. But um, you are right that it is extremely real. It, it's yeah, and I think has damaged a lot of people's lives. Yes, and I remember growing up in West West, West Africa, and I think it's something you've had here as well, where. I think because of the societal pressure to be lighter skinned, you have women, mostly women, will apply skin lightening mm. creams, which are nothing more than poisons. So mm. they strip off, uh, you know, the mm. first layer of skins and it just makes you, um, not good. And do horrendous harm in the yes. name of a mad beauty idea. Although, exactly. I, mean, I suppose there are lots of beauty issues that yeah. we could say that about. I've got strong feelings about people injecting poisoning yeah. into their heads. What do you think would have to happen in society for us to be past that, for us to be in a post-coloristic world? Mm. And I think we're getting there slowly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and I remember going to long ago when my kids were were small, so this would have been about twenty years ago. Um, and I took them to a swimming class uh, here in Joburg. 
And there was a little white girl who was walking with her dad. And she saw me and she said to me, you know, she said to me, you dirty black man. Wow. Okay. And uh, Did the dad want to die? Yes, he did. So, so, so he came up to me to apologize. But clearly, he's, she has learned this. She got that from somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. But 20 years on, I, I, I don't think that happens as often. And I think that the change is slow. So I think that our kids mm. are less inclined to say that and their mm-hmm. kids will be less inclined to say that. So I think it's changing. Um, and it's just changing very, 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 very slowly. And do you think that books like yours and other works of art in the cultural space are helping to raise awareness of the absurdity of colorism and maybe helping to change mindsets, especially in the younger generations? And I would like to think so, but but I think uh, books, unfortunately, and I think that there's just a small part of the battle. So if you look, for example, at the global advertising budget, mm-hmm. probably less than 1% um, is African. So until that those sorts of levers can change and can get pulled, we will have the phenomenon for a very long time. The change will be very, 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 extremely slow. So you see the global media as having much more power than, for example, a novel. No, I wouldn't say that, but but certainly the global media has an important part to play mm-hmm. because it's largely the global media that unfortunately shapes people's thinking and people's minds, and they have so much power and so much reach. And I think a book would need to be phenomenally successful mm. to have the same impact in people's minds as a tweet from Elon Musk, mm. say. Mm. Right. Yeah. And that goes back to the, the need to be read by more people. Yes. The, the need to re- reach a larger audience and an yes, international so, yeah. audience. Yes, I think so. Okay. Well, I think um, we have come to the part of our podcast where we always like to ask our guests how they've been filling up their creative well lately. And it sounds mm-hmm. like you have been doing a lot of that. So what have you been reading or listening to or watching lately that mm-hmm. has had an impact on you? And that you can talk about because it's not a long-listed <laughs> book that you're now going to show favoritism. Right, right, right. So apart from the long list, <laughs> what, what I have been listening to is a podcast called Hardcore History. Okay. It's by a guy called Dan Carlin. And the podcasts are about five hours long. He has no guests. Mm-hmm. And he just talks, but he's such a good, such a good narrator that you don't feel the time. Um, he says he's not a historian, but he just reads the very best. And it's such a fascinating thing to read. So the two episodes I've listened to, one was on the Atlantic slave trade. Mm-hmm. The one I've listened, the one I'm listening to now is, is about, it's about the ancient kingdoms. Right. So the Persians and so on. And what strikes me, what what has an impact on me, is the absolute cruelty that readers oh, then, and I don't think we've changed that much, but the absolute cruelty we display to other people. Mm-hmm. And in his context of, um, of, of the historical story, it was usually um, someone who has conquered someone else and what they do to the vanquished. Absolutely mm-hmm. horrific. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. 
So, for example, so a vanquished general would have to carry or wear around his neck the head of his his former king and walk into the victor city, knowing that you're going to be killed as well. Right, so that kind of thing. I hope this isn't going to be colouring future books, Echo. I do not want to be reading books about people wearing each other's heads into vanquished cities. No, 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 you wouldn't. But it's, it, 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 and it made me think about AI, which is what we spoke about, because we always say that we want your AI to be good. Mm-hmm. Right? So we talk about the bias and, you know, need to write rules and legislation, you know, to keep it on the straight and narrow. Yeah. But when we think of, of, of how cruel humans are, is it reasonable to expect something that a human has created to be any better than a human? Yeah. What an interesting question. And there's a dystopian novel in there for sure. <laughs> there might be. <laughs> well, Echo, we hope everybody um, goes out and reads your existing books, which are published by Picador Africa. And we are very much looking forward to the new manuscript when it gets published. Very much looking forward to it. And thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Thank you very much for having me. It's been been great and it's always great speaking to you. So thank you so much. Thank you. Gail, I was so interested in everything that Echo had to say. And I have to reiterate again that in person, he is such a different persona to what you encounter on the page. I, I can't be the only one who's ever made this observation. <laughs> he, he is. And it's interesting for me because I met Echo before I read his work. Mm-hmm. So I, I imagine that if you read his work before you meet him, he comes as a bit of a shock because he's mm-hmm. such a calm person. Yes. You know, he really, he gives off in person just this, this, you almost feel calmer for being in his presence. Mm, and so thoughtful and so measured in what he says. And then what goes on the page is, is really quite a ride. <laughs> Fiona, what did you take out of that? I think I was most interested in what he had to say about choosing different perspectives for his narrative, how he sort of feels as though maybe he should be telling the whole story from one perspective and that there's something sort of wrong about telling it from multiple perspectives. But I really believe in the case of his writing, it is such a rich thing that Mm. he's doing. You think you're in this person's persona and you're going to experience the story from their perspective. And then suddenly another character walks on and and you're occupying that person's perspective. And it, it just flips the whole script. It makes it so much richer. It just adds these multi-layered perspectives. Maybe it's all part of building the onion. Building the onion, indeed. And I also was, it was almost strange how he thought he was doing a bad thing. I mean, in fact, he's doing a very, very good thing. Well, it's, it's a kind of conventional writing advice, certainly not one that we've ever given, that you shouldn't head hop that you shouldn't occupy all these different perspectives in the narrative, that you should sort of pick one and stick with it, that there's something better or purer or whatever. But I I don't find it valid. I'm pleased to say I've never come across that writing advice because it would have upset me terribly because I love head hopping. It's my favorite thing to do in writing. And what did you take from what Echo said? 
So I was very interested in the way he strongly feels that he gets better and better. Mm. And I was asking myself whether I feel that about my own writing, and I do to some extent, but I think it's a thing to remember and to hold on to as a a thing one should aspire to, mm-hmm. that one mm-hmm. needs to be getting better and better. One needs to be trying different things. One needs to be pushing oneself as a writer. And that feeling of the last book I wrote or often what I feel the, the book I'm currently writing is the best book I've ever written is a real motivating force. And in terms of writing advice for the week? Fiona, the editing that I'm doing has made me think very carefully about details. And someone once described writing as, as a process of time travel, that what you are picturing now in your head, you are trying to project into your future reader's head and you're trying to get it as exact as possible, almost like a game of Chinese whispers. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to get that vision in your head into their heads, you have to give the details of what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. You can't presume that they know that the character's hair is thinning if you don't tell them that the character's hair is thinning. Mm-hmm. You, you've got to tell them where they are, what they're seeing, unless you don't mind if they picture it differently. But a lot of what I'm doing at the moment is adding those details so that my picture translates better and I think it's something to remember when writing yeah I think that ties in with what I was going to say this week which has to do with changing perspectives in your narrative it's not enough that it's just a matter of convenience so uh, you have now switched to the the head of a five-year-old because you want to show what's going on in the classroom and the mother isn't physically in the classroom. So it's just a matter of convenience that you're Mm. switching to the five-year-old. You actually have to occupy that persona of the five-year-old. You have to change your tone, change your register, change the things that this person is noticing, touching, feeling, experiencing, smelling, very much what you were saying about the kind of time travel thing. You have to occupy that point of view in a convincing way. Otherwise, I mean, perhaps that's why a lot of people don't like head hopping. Perhaps it's not just done very convincingly. I was going to say it. It is the challenge of head hopping that you have to not just obsess yourself with one character you've got to obsess yourself with several characters and go deep into several characters and that's a challenge Mm -hmm. but it's also a lot of fun it's fun to write and it's fun to read absolutely so if you have read the work of Echo Dukka if you have struggled with perspective if you have struggled with mid-career motivation especially (laughs) that one please share these with us we need your insights We are on email, we are on all social media across the board, and we'd love to hear from you. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.